Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 150 of Yogaland. Today, my guest is Robin Capo Bianco. You may remember Robin, she's been on the show before on episode 88 and episode 98, talking about neuromechanics and yoga. That's kind of her specialty. She has her PhD from the Neurophysiology of Movement Laboratory at the University of Colorado Boulder. And her research focuses on the neuromechanics of flexibility, sensory contributions to movement, and how pain alters movement patterns. And of course, she's also a yoga teacher and a yoga therapist. So today we talk about two studies that Robin has published. The most recent was published in the Journal of Sports Sciences just a few months ago, and the studies are related to each other. So to give you a bit of background, the first study's published title is Manipulation of Sensory Input Can Improve Stretching Outcomes. The purpose of the study was to compare how modulating sensory input, either via self-massage with yoga tune-up balls or with a feedback system called TENS, transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation. If you've done PT, you might be familiar with TENS. Um, And Robin explains it at the top of the episode much better than I could, so I'm just going to leave it at that. But to compare how self-massage or TENS would affect range of motion in the ankle joint when stretching the calf muscles. So they had 20 people do three sessions of stretching. In the first session, they measured range of motion with stretching alone. In the second session, they measured range of motion while TENS was applied. And in the third session, the participants would do 60 seconds of self-massage with the tune-up balls, and then they'd measure range of motion. For the second study, they tweaked a few things. They added middle-aged subjects because the first round of subjects were all young, like 25 plus or minus four years. And they wanted to see if they get the same results because let's face it, we, as we age, we have more concerns about flexibility. They also removed the TENS measurement. And the takeaway from both studies is the same. Doing self-massage, in this case with yoga tune-up balls before stretching, increased flexibility. And interestingly and importantly, the people who used the tune-up balls also had less of a strength deficit. And this is really important. It's been well-documented that static stretching creates a temporary decrease in muscle strength. Jason mentioned this on the Yin podcast that we did. So it makes sense that we want to mitigate strength loss as much as possible. Again, especially as we age, because we naturally lose muscle every year. After a certain age, I think it's like after age 35, but don't quote me on that. So using the tune-up balls before static stretching did indeed offset that loss of muscle strength. I also want to just talk for a moment about the the measurement that they did. So they, they measured ankle dorsiflexion. And when I first read this, I thought like, oh, it's not very sexy or exciting. You know, I knew that obviously in studies, you need to be really narrow and focused. But I was wondering why, why choose ankle dorsiflexion? Well, it turns out that Of course, ankle dorsiflexion is really important for all the daily activities we do, like walking, climbing stairs, rising from a chair, sitting in a chair. And I also learned that limited range of motion can increase your risk of ACL injury as well as knee pain. In addition, as we age, we all see naturally a decline in our motor function and our flexibility even in healthy adults. And some of this decline is is measurable as soon as we hit middle age, unfortunately. So rolling and using sensory input like tune-up balls 
as we age can possibly mitigate flexibility loss and stave off knee pain. So that's what we talk about. And it's a very heady conversation. You know, Robin is trying to, I I asked her to really explain how they design these studies, because I think it's interesting to see just what goes into very rigorously designed studies that are published in medical journals. And I learned a lot. And I think that you will too. Toward the end of the episode, Robin offers her takeaways from having done this work for so long and how she incorporates these findings into her own life and into her own practice and when she rolls and when she does her workouts and when she and her strength training and when she does her yoga, the order of how she does things, which I thought was interesting. So that's the background. And let's just jump into the conversation with Robin. Okay. Well, so Robin, you have two studies that have been published. You have one that was just recently published in what journal is it? The Journal of Sports Science. Is that right? Journal of Sports Sciences. Yeah. Is that where both of them have been published? No, the first one was published in the European Journal of Sports Science. And the recent one is in the US version. So um, just the Journal of Sports Sciences. Okay. And they're related. So can you just talk about what each one is, like covers? Yeah. So the first study, we wanted to see what the effect of using yoga therapy balls was on range of motion. So I had been studying with Jill Miller and I had used the balls and noticed that it increased my range of motion. And I didn't understand the mechanisms behind that. So that was the impetus for the first study. So our idea was that it's some sort of sensory input into the nervous system that had some sort of effect on the output. So we wanted to see, first of all, was there some sort of known stimulus that we could compare rolling with the balls to? So TENS or transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation is a known therapy that's been used to mitigate pain. And it works via the pain gate theories, which basically states that if you have a painful stimulus, you can apply a non-painful stimulus that activates larger sensory fibers in the nervous system. And that will basically dampen or close the gate to the pain transmission from these smaller fibers. So we looked at just stretching alone. Then we looked at the application of TENS. So we applied TENS for one minute before a stretching session and then during a stretching session. And then we did the same thing with the yoga therapy balls. So our hypothesis was that we would be able to increase range of motion if we had this dampening of the pain gate. So the reigning theory onto why some people can stretch further than others is because it has something to do with your pain tolerance, right? So it's tolerance of the discomfort of stretching. So called stretch tolerance, that that is what ultimately limits you. And of course, the first time I heard that, I'm like, that makes zero sense. Like I had a baby with no drugs, no epidural. (laughs) You know, I think of myself as able to withstand a lot of discomfort. And, you know, I still can't put my leg behind my head. I still can't do some of these crazy range of motion postures. So I thought, well, that can't necessarily be true. So really, I kind of set out to prove that this is not what was happening, Uh you know, in my, in my mind. But of course, I'm a, I'm a scientific researcher and, you know, I was in a neural control lab. So I did everything on the up and up. So again, I thought, well, if 
tens, if the application of tens improves stretching, then that would that would verify this stretch tolerance theory. So again, you know, that's a known thing. So tens is used to mitigate pain in physical therapy. Can you explain what it looks like or what it feels like? Yeah, it's like the a tingling sensation. So if you've ever been to physical therapy and they put these little electrode pads on you I have, and then okay. turned up. Okay. So that's what it is. It it creates this kind of like tingling almost like numbness feeling. But ultrasound doesn't elicit a sensation besides warmth usually. It's a little bit different therapy, but again, it's used, you know, to mitigate pain. But again, all it does is it kind of distracts you. Like if you think about capsaicin and other types of therapies like that, that have like, um, like icy hot. Uh If you put that on, what that does is that that activates sensory receptors in your skin. And so it acts via the pain gate theory. So it basically kind of distracts you from the underlying pain. Huh? I never thought of that. Okay. (laughs) So that's what that does. And we had a physical therapist in my lab at the time that I was doing this research. And so he suggested that my advisor said, well, that's a really good idea. And I said, okay, well, I want to also include these therapy balls because I've seen this big change when I use the balls and when my students use the balls. So that's how we got the third arm of the study. So at the end of that study, we found that TENS actually did nothing to increase range of motion. In fact, in some instances, it made people less flexible and then it didn't really have any additional effects over just stretching alone. But when we compare just stretching alone to stretching when we use the yoga therapy balls, we found that there was a big increase in range of motion with the therapy balls. And then surprisingly, what was really interesting to me is that we also measured maximum voluntary contraction torque. So torque is just a rotary force, right? So it's the, the force created about the joint. And when we looked at the maximum voluntary contraction after stretching, after stretching with TENS and after stretching with self-massage with the therapy balls, we found that there was a stretch-induced force deficit. So this has been published a lot in the literature on static stretching reduces the amount of force that your muscles can produce for whatever reason, we still don't understand. And so we found that to be true. What was interesting is that we actually, um, our participants were able to increase the amount of force that they produced when they used the balls. Huh. So when so, they used the balls and then stretched, they didn't have that deficiency. That's right. Okay. So it was about a 1%, 1%. Okay. So it's not a huge decrease, but a 1% decrease when they did stretching only a two and a half percent decrease when we added 10. So that shows you, we definitely are not doing anything to improve. And then a 16% increase when we rolled first and then stretched. Oh, wow. And this was at 15 minutes after the session. So in total, it was 30, 60, 90 seconds of self-massage prior to 90 seconds of, of stretching. So it was 30 seconds Uh, Sorry, for the rolling, it was a minute on and then 30 seconds of stretching. And then what part of the body did you stretch for that study? The calf muscles. Okay. Okay. Because they're the easiest to measure, right? Because they're not these multi-joint. Like people always ask about the hamstrings and like, well, the hamstrings cross the knee and the hip joint. Um, Yeah. 
you know, it's, it's just really tough. Right. And we wanted to be able to see, there was a lot of literature that looks at stretching and strength of the calf muscles. So it was easy for us to put our results in context of other studies if we did it on this body part. Mm -hmm. So again, we did it at five minutes after the intervention at 10 minutes and at 15 minutes. And we didn't do the force at each time point because we know once you start to do a contraction, then you change everything. So we measured the range of motion immediately after the stretching and then at five, 10 and 15 minutes, but we only did the force measurements at 15 minutes after. And of course, these were all on young adults, right? These are all college-aged kids because, you know, when you work at a university and you're that's doing research available. on a university, that, yeah. <laughs> that's who's available, right? So, you know, to follow up, we thought that the results were so interesting, but we still didn't, we still had so many questions. I was like, well, what's really causing this? Like one of the things that we looked at was a measure called force steadiness. And it's force fluctuation. So anytime you're holding a constant force, you're going to have these fluctuations about the mean that you're holding. And these fluctuations in force are related to variability in the synaptic input to the motor neurons that innervate the muscle. So it's kind of a measure of the central contribution. So think about it as the brain contributions to the motor units for that actual muscle. Okay. So you would think that if you had big changes in, in those force fluctuations, that it was a central generator, which means it would be your central nervous system that was coordinating the changes. So we think more brain or more other types of connections, but we didn't see any changes. So that, that tells us that it's probably happening at the actual muscle level so there's something in the contractile proteins that is causing these changes. So something that's allowing you to produce more force. And there was something at the actual muscle level that's allowing you to stretch further. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Did you measure brain activity in this? Or? Well, we measured this, this surrogate, this marker called force steadiness. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, and we didn't see anything. There was no difference in any of the three treatment groups, even though we saw differences in the outcome measures. So and the ability to, to, to attract and create that force. Okay. So as a follow-up, you know, my advisor and I were talking about, well, you know, this is really interesting, but what can we do to understand this better? So there are a couple different things that we did. Number one is we wanted to say, well, what are the force changes immediately after? So instead of waiting for 15 minutes, I mean, which is... I think interesting in and of itself, what happens when you measure the force and the force steadiness, again, that measure of the central mechanism of change or central drive to um, after the interventions. So instead of waiting for 15 minutes, we just did it five minutes. Mm -hmm. Then we use, we measured EMG activity. So the electrical activity of the muscles, but we use just traditional bipolar electrodes. So there's space it's basically just two points and it doesn't give you a very salient measure. So it's not super sensitive because you only have two points and you're basically measuring the difference between two points. Hmm. So we had a new high density EMG machine and this had a grid of eight electrodes by four. So we had 32 points of contact instead of just two points of contact. 
So then again, this gives us better salience for detecting underlying changes in muscle activity. Yeah. So we use these high density grids and then the way that we measure MVC or maximum voluntary force, we use um, a foot strap that is kind of flexible. So we thought, well, you know, maybe some of our force was really just due to measurement error. I mean, with the big changes that we saw with every single person, it was unlikely, but still we wanted to control for that variable. So I built a foot plate. So I built a rigid foot plate that we strapped the person's foot into that wouldn't let it move. And there are pictures of both of those in my articles that shows what the measuring mechanism looks like. So we also measure, we also added ultrasound because if we are thinking this is not a central mechanism, that this is something that's more at the local level, at the muscle level, the only way we could really get at that besides EMG would be to look at ultrasound to see if we could see inside the muscle, if there are any changes. So, you know, my husband was, has an ultrasound unit. So he's the medical director for rock tape and we've done, you know, some little like home experiments mm-hmm. where, you know, we're messing around with the ultrasound and we'll be like, you know, foam rolling or using the balls or stretching and then immediately putting the ultrasound on and then moving and seeing the tissues sliding and gliding. And what's really fascinating is that you can see the tissues sliding and gliding better after you've rolled. But again, to measure that is kind of difficult. So I tried to think about, well, what is a static way that I can consistently make some sort of discrete measurement? So we picked a spot and we looked at the distance between the skin and then the the fascia where the gastrocnemius and the soleus meet into the Achilles. So the, the musculotendinous junction there. So we use that as like a, a static point and we measured that before and after all of the interventions in the, in the follow-up study. So then finally, I'm not 20. <laughs> I'm like, okay, so it's all well and good that this does this for a younger patient population or a younger population. But, you know, my students are more along the lines of my age. So we'll call us more mature, more mature adults, <laughs> midlife, we're midlife people. So, but, you know, again, if I'm using all of these different measurement techniques on the new study, I also want to see well, what are the changes in younger adults? So adults in their twenties and adults in their forties in, in midlife. So that's how the second study came to be. And it was, it's really hard to find people who can participate in a study and come to the lab a couple times, you know, in the middle of their day to, to hang out with me and foam roll and (laughs) get hooked up to all this stuff. So, you know, I'm really lucky that, you know, I was in Boulder at the time doing this. So I had, I had a couple of my yoga students come up. I had this girl that I did yoga with, her husband was a professor at the university. So he participated and then, of course, my department of integrative physiology, we, there were several professors who participated. So it was really fun to see, you know, they got to participate in my research and I got to show them kind of what I'm doing in the other departments. So that was fun. Just to go back for one moment, I'm going way back, but you had talked about how in the first study you wanted to disprove the, the pain gate theory. And you basically did, right? Well, yeah, the stretch tolerance. Oh, sorry, stretch tolerance, yeah. 
your willingness to tolerate the discomfort of stretching. If that had been correct, then the TENS method would have worked and they would have been able to yeah. stretch. Okay. Stretch That's right. Okay. That's right. Okay. So what were the results of this second study where you measured both younger people and middle-aged people? This one was ankle dorsal. It was the same. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So okay. it was the same. Okay. Same with torque and calf muscle activity. I see. Okay. Well, number one, the results were similar. We found that the increase in range of motion and the increase in torque output was the same in this study as it was in the first study for younger adults. And then we saw the same results in middle-aged adults. So for stretching only, the increase in range of motion was 9.5% with stretching only, and it was 21% when you added the rolling. Wow. And that was again for like 90 seconds, just for 90 seconds. Yeah, so it was the same um, thing. Yeah. yeah. So it was a minute on, so it was a minute of rolling on, then it was 30 seconds of stretching and then it was a rest. And then it was the same thing. We repeated it huh. three times. Yeah. So one minute roll, 30 seconds, stretch, 30 seconds of rest, one minute roll, 30 seconds, stretch, 30 second rest. And then finally one minute roll, 30 seconds, stretch, 30 second rest. So I have both papers pulled up so that I could yeah. give you the actual, give you the actual numbers. So for young adults, the change in torque was similar to our first study in that there was a 2.5% decline, so 2.5% decrease in the amount of force that they could produce. And with middle-aged adults, it was a 5% decrease. And then compared with the first study, we had, with stretching only, a 1% decrease. And then... When we added the self-massage, young adults increased their force by 11%, so slightly less than our first study, and 13% for the middle-aged adults. So it was a 16% increase in the first study, and then 11%, and then 13%. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't different between groups. And again, you know, part of that could have been measurement error from the first study when we had, let's see, we had a 16% increase, but it's not that far off, right? So it's 13% for middle-aged adults, 11% for, for young adults. Yeah. So here you are, you know, when you originally thought about introducing the balls into the um, study, it was because like, as you said, it's something to do with the sensory experience of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what do you think now? <laughs> I mean, it's hard. Like, do you feel like you need to do another study to keep honing in no. on them? Yeah. No, because a study that I haven't published that I did. So I went to Brussels, Belgium to learn how to do a technique called the H reflex. So the Hoffman reflex and the H reflex directly measures the effect of muscle spindle activity on motor output. Okay. And in this study, we looked at the H reflex response. So we only had eight individuals. The, the technique that we did, it takes a really long time. I mean, I was there for a week and we only got eight people done because it's so labor intensive. And we looked at trying to do one of these electrical stimulation studies here. So there's two different things that you can do. You can do what's called the interpolated twitch technique, which looks at the change in force due to a change in synaptic activity. And the results are like notoriously 
very difficult to get because not everyone actually even has a clean response to this. So the H reflex technique is looking at eliciting an electric shock and then seeing what the muscle response is. And then in the interpolated twitch technique, you elicit electric shock and then measure the response. Then you have them produce a force, right? So you're pushing on the gas pedal, contracting your muscle, and you elicit an electric shock on top of that. Okay. 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 So that sounds painful, right? It does. And it is. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually, it's really painful. So my lab mate, Dan and I did so many of these. We're like, okay, this is so difficult and it's so painful. Like how can you get, how can you get clear and clean responses? So it was just too difficult to really get any usable data. But from the trials that I did, I don't, I didn't see any change in this H reflex. So it tells me that this change in range of motion or this change in force is likely not due to muscle spindles themselves. And then in the study in Brussels, I also did what's called the tendon tap reflex. So your muscle spindle, the H reflex is an artificial response where you're stimulating the axon of the sensory receptor. So your muscle spindle is a sensory receptor in your muscles, and then it has an axon that is connected, um, that directly synapses in the spinal cord to the motor neuron that then its axon goes down and, and innervates the muscle, right? So the motor unit is the motor neuron, the, mus- the its axon, and all the muscle fibers it innervates. And each muscle has anywhere from probably 100 to 1,000 motor units, just depending on the size of the muscle. So when you do the H reflex, you basically stimulate it, not at the source, you stimulate, it's an artificial response and an artificial measurement that's just used purely for neurophysiological testing. But when you do a tendon tap reflex, you know, when you go to the doctor and they do a little patellar Mm -hmm. tendon tap and they assess your reflexes. So that's the same kind of thing, but instead of it being electrically stimulated somewhere along the axon, you're actually exciting the receptors themselves. Hmm. So you can do the same kind of thing at the calf muscles. So you do an Achilles tendon tap, and then you measure the muscle response. So we looked at that and the H reflex so that we could tell, is it something that's happening along this sensory motor pathway by electrically stimulating it? Or is it something that's happening at the muscle level at the excitability of the actual muscle spindle? Okay. And again, we didn't see any, any difference. Again, it was a small sample size, but eight mm. people, we didn't see anything. So I don't think that it had anything to do with that sensory input. I think that it's probably likely due to a more complex combination of factors. And that's what you really can't tease out, right? So you have not only input that comes from your muscle spindles, which are length detectors, or your Golgi tendon organs, which are force detectors, but you also have this very complicated reflex response that's due to skin receptors and fascial receptors. So the fascia Mm. is very richly innervated by all kinds of different receptors. So there aren't techniques 
that we can use to tease all of those things out. So just because I didn't see any changes in in the muscle spindles or the length detectors doesn't mean that there's not something else going on. So I think that it's probably a combination of all of these different mechanoreceptors from the fascia, from the skin, and then also probably some changes in fluid dynamics. Hmm. So again, we didn't see anything on ultrasound with this, which we have reason to believe that we could detect changes in fluid dynamics and that the fluid dynamics would change when you're doing foam rolling, right? If you think about it, you're, you're moving as you're pushing down on the tissue, you're moving fluid. Yeah. Right. Yeah. A lot of limbs. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. But we had this basic musculoskeletal ultrasound. I think if we had probably some sort of higher density, like there's um, a technique called elastography and elastography is a very, it's a more complicated, more complex method of looking at fluid dynamics, basically, or looking at, at changes in fluid in different areas and changes in, in density that we might be able to see something. But again, we just didn't see anything on our crude basic ultrasound. So interesting. I mean, I guess part of me thought you might say that that maybe a contributing factor would be but I guess you weren't they weren't rolling for long enough. I guess I was thinking maybe a contributing factor would be the nervous system, right? Because Well, yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The muscle spindle is is an easy thing for us to measure with our techniques because it's a monosynaptic connection, meaning that the muscle spindle makes one connection directly onto the motor neuron. I wish I could draw like a little, uh-huh. anyone who, anyone who's taken my course knows that I like to draw all the, all the little connections. So, you know, if you're listening and you've taken my course, imagine <laughs> the, mm-hmm. the stretch reflex. Yeah. But all of these other mechanoreceptors make very, make very complex connections throughout their nervous system. So we know there have been studies that have looked at muscle responses. So you could elicit a twitch or do an electrical stimulus in the second toe of the foot. And you can find muscle responses in the, in the spinal muscles, hmm. in the quads and in the calf muscles. So again, it's really hard. You can't say, well, it's this one thing. And mm-hmm. that's what we were looking for, right? We're like, okay, is the one thing, the muscle spindle, this length detector, and it's not, but again, we don't have refined enough methods for saying it is you know, a Ruffini ending, right? Or it's a Merkel cell complex, or it's, you know, some of these different specialized receptors. So it's likely that it's a combination of input to all of these different sensory receptors that's making all of these complex connections throughout the nervous system, all the way up into the brain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I can appreciate that even more now in my current role as the director of clinical research for our chronic pain therapies division, where I look at the effect of pain or the effect of spinal cord stimulation. So eliciting electrical stimulation directly to the spinal cord on people's pain and their pain perception, right? So, you know, what we were looking at is a, that was a physiologic motor response, but pain is actually not just this 
kind of motor response to um, like a withdrawal reflex or saying, you know, I'm not going to stretch as far, but it's also how we interpret those mm-hmm. signals. Mm-hmm. So it is likely that there is some sort of effect of pain and somehow rolling does do something more complex mm-hmm. to the nervous system because you basically have two pain processing pathways. One is the lateral pathway. So when you burn yourself, right, you have nociceptors or these small diameter pain fibers that say, hey, Andrea, you just burned yourself. You should probably get your hand out of that fire and not do that again. And then you have the medial pathway, which then depending on your past experience will say, hey, this is a really unpleasant situation that makes you feel like really upset about this, right? So, you know, some people have different responses Mm -hmm. to injuring themselves, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's like some people will be like, oh my gosh, that's the worst thing that ever happened. They have this, what's called pain catastrophizing and it severely impacts them. And then other people are like, yeah, you know, I hurt myself and there we go. Right. And if you think about kids for the most part, like one of the girls on my daughter's soccer team broke her arm playing at the playground after a soccer game. And we're all like, oh yeah, just brush it off, brush it off. And she played and she's like, yeah, this is still not feeling very well. And she went in to finally get an x-ray and she had broken her arm. Oh man. Right? Yeah. You know, but this is the first time she she doesn't have any background sure. to say to inform her way of processing it. Right. Now, if she did that and then two years later she broke something else and it hurt more. And mm-hmm. then, you know, another year later she was doing something, she would probably develop this kind of fear of doing an activity. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think about people like even in yoga, right? So you hurt yourself doing something or you tweak something in a posture and then you start to become fearful of doing that posture or that movement. Mm -hmm. And I told a story on the last podcast about a patient that my husband had treated who had that very thing. Like he had developed in his mind that he could not that he could not move. Right. right. And so pain. I remember that's this. right. Yeah. That's right. And so yeah. we do this kind of graded exposure. So, you know, it's likely that, that there is part of this medial pathway activation of processing the discomfort of, of stretching hmm. because we do see that there's a pretty big variability within patients. And so in my studies, I also do my best to make sure that I'm being really honest and open about people's responses. And so I have a plot um, in each of the studies that shows what everyone's individual response is so that you can see that there is some variability. There's a grouping around the mean, but there are also some pa- some people who have a really dramatic response and some people who, who have a less dramatic response. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> weird personal anecdote that I hope is helpful to people that I'm sharing. Cause I mean, I'm not like just sharing it to talk about myself, but just when you were talking about lymph 
um, flow. So <laughs> I had breast cancer. I had two lymph nodes removed on my left side and I have like a whole bunch of scarring on my left side, like in my armpit and then on the like inner side of my breast. And when you have lymph nodes removed anywhere, you are forever for the rest of your life at risk of what's called lymphedema, which is when for people listening who don't know what it is, it's when, you know, the lymph lymphatic fluid can't flow through the way it used to because the lymph nodes are gone. And when that happens, you experience pain and swelling and it can get really, really bad. And it can, you know, go down your whole arm and your hand and all this stuff. I've had three bouts of it. None of them got so bad that I had the whole arm or anything like that because I kind of caught it early and did physical therapy. But I finally figured out what was triggering it. And for me, and what triggers it is actually my mammogram <laughs> because oh, interesting. they have to squeeze so hard. And like, because I've had cancer before, they like want to make sure they get everything and like every, like they pull and push and twist me around and like all these things, they take all these images and everything. And this happened to me last week. I had my mammogram last week and, you know, a few days later I looked down and it's like, my breast is like angry. It's like red and and it's so, and, and like the muscles where my scar tissue was, or I should say just the area where my scar tissue is on both sides, is like so sore, like as if I lifted a hundred pound weight, like over my yeah. head 50 times or something. I'm like, what is going on? The good part of the story is that because I've, I've done physical therapy before, they, the clinic at UCSF sent me this video and it's just this really simple, simple lymphatic massage video. It's five minutes. And I had done it in the past in conjunction with the physical therapy. And so I didn't know how effective it was. But this time I caught it so early that I was like, I'm just going to do this video tonight. And it is literally five minutes. And it's like lymphatic massage, you guys, is like touching your skin lightly with two fingers. Like, okay, put, place your two forefingers on the sides of your neck and pump gently 15 times. Place your you know, fingers under your opposite armpit. Pump gently 15 times. I mean, it's like the gentlest. It doesn't feel like you're doing anything. Wow. And I did it. And the next day it was gone. All the pain was gone completely. And it has been gone. And so I said to Jason, like, why are we all doing lymphatic <laughs> massage every day? Like, why isn't there a whole system for, and so it's interesting to think about the balls, right? You're constantly, you're, you're doing that gentle pressure of rolling. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I don't explain this well, but so people know the lymphatic system isn't like the circulatory system, like the circulatory system has the heart as a pump and it, the lymphatic system works differently. I won't go into like all of that, but the way that you can, you know, activate it really is through exercise or I would think through the rolling. Yeah, definitely. So like I, when you were saying that, I was just like, oh my gosh, this is kind of exactly what I've been thinking about lately is how often are we sort of having trouble with lymphatic flow that we're not even aware of that can really contribute to like significant pain. Like last summer when this happened to me, I don't know how, but I let it get really bad. And it was like my whole upper back was swollen. I mean, it was excruciating. And you never think like, you don't think about your lymphatic fluid. You just don't, it's not, it's just like Mm -mm. not in our awareness at all. (laughs) So it's kind of cool to think that as people like you keep studying these things, like we just might get more shed more light on this and how, like you said, how it's all connected and complicated. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting where, you know, this, this whole idea of smashing, like, you know, you're going to break up the fascia and it's self myofascial release. And it's like, you don't need to smash anything. Like Mm -hmm. in order to deform your fascia, 
you have to apply a thousand pounds of pressure per square inch. So again, it's this you're probably stimulating the lymphatic system for sure. Yeah. You're definitely stimulating all these different mechanoreceptors, all these different sensations and sensory systems. And it's having this effect on the nervous system. Yeah. And uh, so, I mean, I love your story because it really adds to that. Like, you don't need to smash it. Like, mm-hmm. you can make changes, right? I mean, no, and I'm like the queen of like smashing anything that's a problem. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, I got to work as hard as I possibly can. So it like shocks me that this work <laughs> works every time. It shocks me. <laughs> well, I mean, think about it. I was getting a massage on Saturday and she was pushing so hard. I was like, you're pushing too hard. I'm like, yeah. all it's doing is like, I can't breathe, you know? And even when we're rolling, like, you know, Jill will always say, don't be on that area that's angry. Like go in the areas above and below it because you're not breaking anything up. Right, right, right. right. And, you know, you can have the opposite effect where you're just amping up your nervous system and instead of relaxing it, you're making things worse. So it's, it's funny. My husband actually taught me this and I started incorporating it into my training courses where, you know, I like to do these like magic tricks right? So one is rolling the feet. So you do a forward fold and you test it before and after rolling your feet. Well, there's an the bottoms, easier way, just like the bottoms of your just, feet, just the bottoms okay. of your feet. Yeah. Okay. There was a study that looked at range of motion after two minutes of rolling each foot. And I just do one minute of each foot while I'm explaining something else. I have everyone get up, roll your feet. And then we check it. And it's, I mean, it's dramatic, right? Oh. It's super dramatic, but what's even, what's similar is that it's this new head massage thing. So I have everyone, you know, at one point in the course, do a forward fold. Okay. You assess your range of motion and then you trade head massages. And so you're just giving these like these really nice, like not this like bad $10 massage like that, but you're doing this like, oh, it feels so good. Kind of like slow. I mean, if you do it to yourself, you you and Jason will have to do it today. Okay, we will. But first do your your range of motion. And then you go ahead and you check it and you're like, what? I didn't do anything physical to my body. All I did, I mean, okay, you did something physical to your body by massaging your head, but you didn't do anything to your hamstrings. You didn't do anything to your feet you still are affecting the sensory receptors in that myofascial chain. Hmm. So it's interesting that we see that same change rolling your feet. And again, you didn't do anything to your hamstrings. You didn't do anything to your back, but now you can reach further. And then you do the head massage and you have that same effect. So I challenge the listeners to go off and do that. I mean, it's super cool, but it just shows you like, you don't need to kill you yourself. Don't smash it. You don't yeah. need to smash anything. Yeah, like, you don't need a lacrosse ball, right? Like, you know, I've even started using the gorgeous ball. Uh-huh. So the, you know, the, the, the blow up ball. Yeah. Right? And then I saw Jill not too long ago I was in studio city for work and she was super excited about the new graphite, the new color of the gorgeous ball. And so we were doing this kind of stimulation around the neck for the vagus nerve. And it was amazing. And now I do this, like when I get all flustered and upset at work. I like just go and like roll my neck on one of those like big soft balls. Oh, I like that. I'm like, oh, okay. It's super, it's super good. Super good. Yeah. Yeah. So this, but, this kind of relates to my last sort of question for people. Like if we 
think about your studies and obviously, you know, I've had you on before, I've had Jill on before, we've talked about the balls and like the benefits of using them, but what can we give people in terms of takeaway information for incorporating this into their life? So I am a runner and I used to, my my husband said, well, you know, roll your feet before you run. Cause I was working on using Vibram shoes to do trail running. And I found that every time I just rolled my feet. I actually, and ran in my Vibrams, it kind of destabilized me a Mm. little bit. Like it had the opposite effect. And when we look at static stretching, we look at the effect of static stretching on injury prevention. And there hasn't really been any, there's an association between lack of range of motion and injury, but not between stretching itself and, and injury prevention. So the great thing that I found about the balls is that if you only do static stretching, you decrease the amount of force that you can produce, right? So that means that you're not going to want to go and do static stretching and then go do CrossFit, right? Jason, or I do just something. had a conversation about this on the, on the, yeah, we just did a podcast about yin and had a conversation about this. Yeah. Yeah. I have lots of thoughts about yin, yeah. but <laughs> especially after listening to Jason's thing about the SI joint. Yeah. Yeah, I have a lot of comments on that too. But if you roll first, if you roll and then stretch, we know that that combination eliminates this stretch-induced force deficit. So that wouldn't be so bad and would be a good way of warming up right. before you want to go do some range of motion. So I would say that you know if you're going to go do something where you're lifting weights, roll and stretch to help increase your mobility. Yeah. Right. But preserving the amount of force that you can produce and then go do that. But, you know, even with that, I like to, uh, between you and me and everyone who's listening, I guess it's not really a secret between you and me and everyone who's listening (laughs) in the world (laughs) and yoga land. I don't really do any stretching before I lift weights. Like I basically do, I do some basic mobility drills, just kind of doing some active range of motion. And then I save my rolling and stretching and things like that for after, or I do it as a separate workout. Uh huh. That's just me. Yeah. Uh, that's just what I found works best for my body. Um, but I would say that I really do find a difference. Like if I warm up even before a yoga class, I roll and stretch and then do yoga. And I find that I have better outcomes because my sensory system is already primed for everything that's coming. That's, that's going to come. Right. Um, cause I find that the older I get, the longer it takes me to kind of get warmed up. So this kind of gives me that, that boost where I'm not, you know, I mean, you get on your mat and, and I do my first forward fold. I'm like, oh Same. my God, like my whole body hurts. It so it takes instead, me like 10 minutes to get into my yes, first forward fold if I, I haven't know. rolled. Yeah. Gosh, <laughs> I know. So I roll my feet. In fact, like here, I'm at my, you know, in my office, you know, on the floor underneath my desk is my favorite foot rubs ball. So I like to rub my feet throughout the day too. Um, you know, and That's I have an like thing for people to do, just oh, have it under your desk. It's so easy. Yeah. Like, you know, you just take your shoe off and you roll. I have them everywhere. I have I have yoga tuna balls everywhere and I have my foot rubs ball everywhere. And I've probably given away 
more than most people have ever purchased in their life. Cause I'm like, oh, you need balls. You right. need balls. Or like on flights, like the flight attendant, I'm like, you need balls. <laughs> oh, that's so nice. That's actually really thoughtful. That's really true. Gosh, they do the, like the changes in air pressure that they go through. Oh and, man. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I keep them in my car, but you know, I would say you're priming your nervous system. If you're rolling prior to doing your, your yoga practice. I mean, especially if you have areas that tend to be tight, like for me, it's my low back. I notice that my feet get tight. So mm-hmm. I do a lot of work on my feet and I do a lot of work on my low back. And then of course I love the base of the skull. Right. Yeah. Kind of rolling, but I find that it makes my practice more fruitful. So instead of practicing and like having to fight these thoughts of like, Oh my gosh, I'm so stiff. I'm getting so old. Like, why does my body hate me? normal thoughts. Yeah. I am able to just be in my practice. Right. Right. Instead of having all of those distractions. So I just eliminate those distractions. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. My, my daughter has like some sensory integration issues. Um, people might not be familiar with that, but it's sort of complicated to explain, but I guess in essence, it means that her certain parts of her sensory systems miscalculate the way she receives information. So like Uh loud noises are really loud to her or certain smells are like very, she'll walk in some place and be like, Oh my God, it smells so horrible in here. And I don't smell anything. (laughs) One of like the therapies for it is waking up the proprioceptive system. So like bouncing on a trampoline or like squeezing her, like I squeeze her in the morning, kind of like, like a squeezy kind of massage. I, I actually wonder for kids like that, how the, if the balls would be helpful, you know, because it seems like there is some element to it that's similar, waking up the proprioceptive system. I mm-hmm. feel like when I roll before I do my practice, my muscles just feel more awake. It's not just that they feel more relaxed. It's also like they just feel more responsive right, to what's about to happen. It doesn't. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, because you are. I mean, because everything that you're doing there, those are muscle spindles are proprioceptors. You're all of your mechanoreceptors that respond to changes in pressure or shearing forces. All of they're all part of the proprioceptive system. And so I wonder if it would be helpful for her because then she's in control of it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So a lot of these sensory things are because things are, are abrupt. And because you're not having control over them. Right. So I wonder if giving her those things and like even just doing the gorgeous ball is something really easy and light that is not so forceful mm-hmm. would be helpful. Like my dad cannot use the regular yoga tune-up balls. They're too hard he, for him. They're too hard for him. Like yeah. even the soft ones. And so, you know, people are they have different levels of sensitivity to, yeah. to different types of stimuli. So just giving her that and saying, you know, roll this on your body or like having it and putting it on her arm and just like turning it a little bit where, you know, they're, they're nice where they, um, all Jill's balls grab hold of the skin. And so you can make those little, little changes and teaching her to do it herself yeah, so that she always feels then in control of, of things. It's like her proprioceptive system needs to be woken up sometimes. Yeah. And, or yeah. sometimes it needs to be like more downregulated. It's hard to kind of explain. You can see it. Yeah. In the, you can see it in the kid when it happens, but also maybe the feet would help because the trampoline is very helpful to them. Any bouncing is very, I mean, then, then that could be possibly like the vestibular system, but I think also the bottom of the feet, getting that feedback is helpful. 
Totally. You know, it's interesting that, and I was thinking about this study that was done on taping. So there, there's a type of sensory neuropathy called HSAN type two. It's sensory, it's hereditary sensory autonomic neuropathy. Hmm. And they have a loss of small diameter proprioceptor or of larger diameter proprioceptors, but the smaller diameter proprioceptors are intact. And they do like a proprioception test where you know, you're sitting on a table and you have someone move a leg to certain different degrees. And then the person being assessed has their eyes closed and you have to match where you think your leg is in space. And when they do it, when people with this disease try to do it, they cannot match it at all. It's like, you know, one leg is at 30 degrees and then they match it at like five degrees or at like 50 degrees. That's fascinating. it's super interesting, but it's then like when they, they put, don't know where their body is in space, they don't. That's right. And that's, that's right. They don't. Like my daughter too. Yeah. 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 Right. So then, when they put tape on that area and they put tape around the the knee, kinesiology tape, they're able to match just as well as someone without that really disease. Wow. Yeah. It's super fast. I'll have to send because you the, the paper because it's giving them the feedback that they need. That's right. That's okay, right. This helps so me understand about- it so much better. <laughs> Yeah, people ask about tape all the time, and I'm like, it's not structural. All it is is proprioceptive. It's feeding the nervous system, like all of these things that we do. So I was posting like on on cupping and like gua sha and things like that. I mean, I think the biggest benefit to all of these different types of manual therapies is that proprioceptive input that you're giving. Super cool, and I mean, and I mean, I think in the long term for me of my yoga practice, my, my physical yoga practice, the gain in awareness of proprioception is like by far more important to me than anything else. It's like, I just understand where my body's in space, why it feels the way it feels, what to do to make it feel a little different. You know, it's, it's like such a good calibrating system to have that awareness. Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, the whole idea yoga tune-up of identifying your body's blind spots, Uh right? Of recognizing, of like using these tools to help you understand where you're not moving, right? And going like, wow, that's really interesting. Like if you even do, a lot of times in my classes, we'll do like a sensory touch kind of thing while you go to the back and say like, you know, can you feel this? Where is my finger? Like point to where my finger is. And then you roll and then you repeat that right? Then you get to see, you know, did you improve? And people, this is a a typical way of assessing proprioception. So it's called two-point discrimination. And so you basically have like a set little device and you can print one out or you can make one yourself that has two points and it's separated by a specific distance. So you can do like a two centimeter or an inch difference or however you want to do it. And then you can put it on different areas of the body and say like, how many points are touching you? Is it one point or two point? And so it really helps increase that awareness and that sense of different areas on your body. And then subsequently, what muscles you're actually engaging, right? So you don't need to tell people to use different muscles, right? In your, in your yoga practice, if you give them that proprioceptive input and you give them some interesting ways of, of doing yoga asana or exercises, that target those areas, they'll be able to activate them yeah. automatically. Right. That's so neat. Yeah. yeah. Cool. 
Well, thanks so much, Robin. I just love talking to you. And um, yeah, no, I just, I love the work that you do. And it's so interesting. And it's, you know, so much of why I do the podcast is just to inspire people, including myself, <laughs> to keep taking care of ourselves. And this is like great. I'm going to literally get off the phone with you and go roll. And that's going to feel I think so good. I'm going to go roll too. Okay. <laughs> okay, good, good. <laughs> we'll, we'll be rolling it. together. Okay. <laughs> Thanks again. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I will put links to both of Robin's studies on the show notes page, which you can find at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 150. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving us a five-star review and rating. It's always, always super helpful on many levels, and I appreciate it. On Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen to your podcasts is great. And that's it for now. Until next week, enjoy your practice.